Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 104, The Last Sardinian Judicate. As we head into our 14th century, and the always messy situation in Italy gets even messier, it may be useful at times to draw a few parallels with what was happening elsewhere in the peninsula and its islands. It is not yet another recap, but a quick overview so we know what's going on at the same time as what we are talking about in this episode. When I was listening to the great podcast Talking History, the Italian Unification by the Ashwell Brothers, I found this idea very helpful, so let me know what you think. The years we are talking about today go from 1323 to 1326. At the same time, we have Sicily being ruled over by the Aragonese king, Frederick III, who was always trying to get his hooks on the rest of what used to be the Kingdom of Sicily. That part was the Kingdom of Naples, ruled over by the Angevins, and in this particular case, King Robert, who was also busy getting involved up north with the remaining communes, republics and signorie. Heading north still, we reach the Papal States. The papacy at the time was going through its French phase, with the popes residing in Avignon. In the time we're going to cover, we have John XXII, staunch adversary of the Visconti of Milan. We'll dedicate an episode to what was actually going on in the city of Rome without its pope. Spoiler alert, they were not doing too well. As far as the papal states outside of Rome go, they weren't too bothered because without a unifying central power in the country, the local signori could also start to do their own thing. In the centre-north, Milan was reaching the peak of its dominance and expanding almost up to Venice in the east and Genoa in the west. They had managed to overcome the crusade launched by Pope John XXII and to consolidate their dominion over the surrounding cities. Matteo Visconti, who had dominated the city's politics for over 20 years, had died and now his grandson, Azzone, was on the scene after the trouble with his uncles had been sorted out, along with his father, Galeazzo. Azzone showed his military prowess in the battle of Alto Pascio, in Tuscany and then moved over the Apennines to participate in the Battle of the Bucket, coming up soon in an episode. To the northeast, Venice was reeling from its defeat by Pope John XXII and from internal turmoil, but managing to get back on its feet. Finally, Genoa in the northwest had re-found its unity after a split between Guelphs and Ghibellines in time to face the oncoming Aragonese incursions. So, 
That brings us to where we want to be in this episode, and that is Sardinia. Now, we've been popping over to Sardinia occasionally during our podcast, and it's time once again to go there for a little holiday. It's actually the wrong time of year to go, since as I record this, it's almost winter, and Sardinia is known as a summer seaside location. No matter, we shall have the chance to go exploring without the crowds of tourists. You will remember that Sardinia was a particularly interesting case of a sort of anachronistic system of four independent kingdoms called judicates, ruled over by a judge. This figure, left over from the Byzantines, was not an absolute ruler, but had to rule alongside a sort of proto-parliament, the Corona de Logu, which had local representatives from towns and villages who, in turn, met in the Coronas de Curiatores. The ruler could actually be deposed by this body, and the land belonged to the people and not to the judge. Our early 14th century Sardinia had seen the growing influence of the maritime republics, Genoa, and in particular Pisa. Indeed, Sardinia is a very interesting example of how things worked as the communal period passed into that of the Signoria, the hereditary rule of important families. If we look at a map of Sardinia from 1323, which I have posted on the website along with the notes to this episode, we see a mix of areas dominated by judicates, maritime republics and individual families. There had originally been four judicates, that of Calari in the south, Gallura in the northeast, Logudoru or Torres in the northwest and Arborea in the centre-west. All of the east coast from north to south now belonged to Pisa, with swathes of land heading over to the west in the southern part. The very bottom part, the southwest, was ruled over by the Donoratico or della Gerardesca family from Pisa. This, of course, was the family of Ugolino della Gerardesca, the guy who had ruled Pisa for a bit, then got locked up in a tower and starved to death and ended up in Dante's Inferno. To the northwest was a splodge of land that mostly belonged to the powerful Genoese family of the Doria. Right in the middle of that land was a little bit ruled over by the Malaspina family from the north of Tuscany and, interestingly, the commune of Sassari, the only commune in Sardinia. From the central western coast spreading into the centre was the last remaining judicate of Sardinia, that of Arborea. Now, the judge of Arborea, Ugone II, which means Big Hugo, really didn't like the look of things with these Italian maritime republics and families pushing him into a corner. Now, who to turn to to get help against these invading foreigners? Well, if you're in Sardinia and you're looking towards mainland Italy with a scowl on your face, you can turn around 180 degrees and you would be staring straight over at Spain. 
There's also the question that Pope Boniface VIII had actually assigned the island of Sardinia to James II of Aragon in 1297. James had been way too busy to get around to actually claiming his island, and meanwhile things had gone on as usual. The time had finally arrived. Sardinia, with its strategic position in the middle of the Mediterranean, its bursting silver mines and salt fields, was too interesting a prize to pass up. Before we see how things played out, a last word from a couple of sponsors. Ugorne II, the judge of Arborea, knowing which side his bread was buttered on, became a vassal of James II of Aragon in exchange for maintaining his hereditary right over his own judicate. With this big hitter in his corner, on the 11th of April 1323, Big Hugo opened up hostilities against the Pisans, defeating them near the town of Saniluri in southern Sardinia. In May, a contingent representing the vanguard of the Aragonese invasion arrived with three galleys with 200 knights and 2,000 infantry. The main invasion force arrived in June with 300 galleys. The Aragonese started off their war with the siege of Villa di Chiesa in the south, a town founded by our old Ugolino della Gerardesca, the cannibal count from Pisa. The city fell after seven months due to starvation. The Aragonese, as well as Hugo and his Arborean army, were also supported by the Doria, Malaspina and the commune of Sassari. Meanwhile, the Pisans started to hit back, attacking and sinking two galleys. It would be in the following year, 1324, that the Pisans really committed to defending their holdings. When they did, something interesting happened. The Pisans sent out a fleet, but avoided engaging with the Aragonese fleet not wanting to engage in a naval battle. In the end, an agreement was reached on a pitched battle on land and the Pisans were allowed to land near the city of Capoterra, again in the south of Sardinia. As the landing operations took place, a contingent of 25 Aragonese knights watched closely. The Pisan army, commanded by a member of the della Gerardesca family, Manfredi was trying to get around the allied Aragonese army to meet up with other Pisan troops under siege, but the Spanish were having none of it. They headed them off near the town of Luco Cisterna. The swampy terrain and the violent clashes made for a particularly violent battle. Despite Manfredi della Gerardesca, the Pisan commander, being wounded and leaving the battle early, his troops continued stoically, dying in the mud. Shortly after, the two fleets also met and the Pisans were defeated again, thus cutting off the escape of those who were fleeing from the land battle. Soon, almost all of the Pisan holdings fell to the Aragonese. All of the ex-judicates of Gallura and Calari in the east and south of the island. The remaining part of the island fell in due time, 
As soon as the Aragonese had actually got involved, the commune of Sassari, which had been allied with the Republic of Genoa, switched to the Spanish. Then, in 1325, after the first round of hostilities, the Doria of Genoa attempted to invade the commune of Sassari, and Pisa and Genoa itself also got involved. The two maritime republics armed a joint fleet, but their combined strength was not enough to bring them victory, and they were defeated by the Aragonese near the Gulf of Cagliari in southern Sardinia. That was basically it. The judge of Arborea, Ugone II, Big Hugo, could now sit back, knowing that the threat of Pisa, all that land to the north, east and south of his judicate, was no longer in Pisan hands. Now, all of the area was under Aragonese control and became the Kingdom of Sardinia. So, problem solved, right? I mean, now they could get on with their own business in peace, not worrying about having a powerful neighbour with a powerful fleet and army that might someday want to control all of the island. Oops. It sort of shows you how little we learn from history, or perhaps how history sometimes puts us in a position in which we have to choose what initially seems like the lesser of two evils. In our own little podcast, the examples are abundant. In the late 5th century, Byzantine Emperor Zeno called in Theodoric to get rid of Odoacer, then the same Byzantines started the war against the Goths to take Italy back. In the early 9th, the Sicilians called in the Arabs to get rid of the fiscally oppressive Byzantines, only to find themselves with a couple of centuries of Arab dominance. In the 11th, we saw the southern Italian nobles calling in the Normans to help in local struggles, only to see those same Normans set up a kingdom in the south of Italy that would also include Sicily, once warring Arab factions called in the Normans. In the 13th century, we saw the Pope calling Charles of Anjou, who then tried to take the Pope's place as the leader of the Guelph faction, and so on and so forth, and these are just a few examples. In Sardinia now, what was done was done. Hugo II would not live to regret his choice. His descendants would. So we will be going back for a visit to our own Emerald Isle. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters, starting from the lower part of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, and that is Marxist-Leninist-Sicilian Mike M, Neville, Paradise, Patrizia Kappa, Renee B, Roberta D, Rod L, Rodney N, the Question Master, Rudy F, Sam, Scott L, Shelby, Stephen, and Tio5. Then the tippy top, Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, JW, Andrew M, Brandon S, Maxime, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, and of course, Sen. If you feel so inclined because you're feeling bored or just want to reach out and say hello, share a thought, share a holiday wish, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com 
at the same URL. You can go to our website where you can click through to our social media, Twitter and Facebook. And if you're so inclined, you can go to the support page and you can become a Patreon supporter and have access to extra content or support on PayPal. Or if you're thinking, after having followed the wonderful suggestions I've given you from our sponsors of that last present, you can purchase a copy of our own, the K-Rock Chelsea Hotel book, as a lovely holiday present. Once again, thanks very much to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Okay, so we are here to see if we can reach an agreement on the battle, since you cowards won't engage at sea. I object to the word coward. Well, what do you call someone who will not give battle? Differently brave. Right, since your differently brave choice to not engage in battle, we propose to allow you to lend. Oh, how nice. Thank you very much. You will disembark on the 25th of February. The 25th? Yes. Problems? Well, it's my auntie's birthday, you see, and she makes these most amazing cakes. It would really be a shame to miss. Uh, on the 26th? What time? What time? Does it matter? Well, if we land in the morning, we could take advantage of the sun and perhaps do a little sightseeing. That part of Sardinia is lovely, even in the winter season. Then again, we could land around tea time and perhaps have a snack on our ships first. Uh, okay, su surprise me. Ah, yes, good idea. I like surprises. Speaking of which... Do we get a landing present? Landing present? We're, we're organizing a battle here. N not, not a wedding reception. Well, that's no excuse for being rude. Fine. My gift will be my sword stuck in your bowels. Ah, speaking of which, since we are setting out the rules for battle, must we really use swords? Well, what, what do you suggest we use? Well... We have these French traders who have bought a new sort of bread. They call it baguettes. You, we could use them. Swords are really sharp and dangerous, after all. We should fight using bread? Yes. Then if someone gets hungry during the battle, they won't have to leave the field. Of course, we have to make sure that everyone is super honest. And when they get hit with the baguette, they should lie down. That's ridiculous. You're so boring! No, I'm not. Anyway, the landing operation will be overseen by a contingent of knights. Oh, goody. Will they be serving refreshments? Refreshments? You're lucky they won't rain a hail of arrows upon you. Well, that's not very hospitable. Could they at least sing something? 
Let's just see how things go. I was really hoping to get more out of this agreement. Can we discuss hats and floral arrangements? I give up. Well, what do you call someone who will not give battle? Different, 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 differently. 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 Brave. Yes. Then if someone gets hat, uh, if some, <sighs> well, that's not very hospitable. Hospitable. Hospital. Hospitable. Hospitable. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminium. Sentira Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.